Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Somehow dark, and with just a, just a little bit of circus thrown in for a good measure, it must be another edition of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. Hello, I'm Nikki Dakota, your host, joined in the studio by the film guys. Today is my great pleasure to welcome the storyboard artist for the Coen Brothers and many, many, many other films. He's also our friend. He is... Hey, film guy, J. Todd Anderson, welcome. A Nikki Secret Dakota Ring. Uh, <laughs> it's so good to be here today. Also in the studio, and the largest frame brain on this globe we call home, he is the Nitrate Film Archivist for the Library of Congress and the other film guy. Welcome, George Williman. Rigatoni. <laughs> the Paisano. <laughs> Molto bella. If you noticed a slightly uh, Italian, italic, shall we say, uh, bent to the accents today is because we have come together to celebrate a perfect film that is indeed Italian. It is by perhaps the most famous Italian director. There are many, 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 but this... Uh, right, this, this this man, when, when you ask someone about Italian film directors, even if they don't know any, his name usually rises to the top first, and that is, of course, Federico Fellini. We are talking about Fellini's 1963 movie called Eight and a half. Or in the mother tongue, Otto Emitzo. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I guess um, at first I, I imagined that there would be no explanation for exactly why this movie is called Eight and a Half. But apparently there's he, he named it this yes, because... Yes, they, they, they actually had several different names for it, but he finally decided on this one because in his career this was his eighth and one half movie. And well we must point out, as it was pointed out in our college days, that it is never written in language. It is always numerically uh, right. Printed. It's always shown as as a num as the number eight, eight and, and the one, numeral and eight, one and then the designation one, one over two. Now, now, why is it eight and a half? Though I mean, eight and a half. The, his explanation of that was that at this point in his career, he had done six features, two shorts. And an episode of an omnibus film that was put together by another director. So you had the six, and <laughs> okay. then the two shorts make seven, and the episode makes a half. So this was the eight and a half film. So and it's obviously he dictates what the arithmetic and how it works. <laughs> right. <laughs> According to my math, <laughs> we have eight and a half films here. Before we get on to the specifics of how perfect this film is, we need to point out that it has indeed passed the film guy's strict, rigid, fast criteria for designating a perfect film. And gentlemen, those rules are... Eight and a half creates the world that it exists in... Uh... <laughs> And a wholly sustained that world. Regardless of changes in society, eight and a half retains its meaning and entertainment value. And is never placed in any kind of preferential or numerical order. Eight and a half is perfect within its own scale. 
And we apologize to all Italians out there for that. Father Guido Sardici, thank you for uh, giving us the rules today. And, and it's- th- this film was a hard sell for Budinsky. We actually, yeah. he uh, he had to spend a couple nights in the box before he would agree to this one. We kept turning the eight and a half upside down and messing with it, you know. Two wait, wait, what's going on eights. here? <laughs> at, at one point he said we could only do part of it, we could call it four and a quarter, but, you know. And unlike the, uh, <laughs> that was good, but unlike the uh, accents you've heard here, this is not a, a, a film in English with Italian accents. It's it's, it's in Italian. It's subtitled. It's in Italian. Uh, subtitled in English. Yes. 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 Um, interestingly enough, though, as we've been discussing on our own, uh, the Italian films, the sound of Italian films is something very, very special. It is totally different than the American films, which, you know, to this day especially are the sound becomes almost more importantly produced than the image in some aspects. In Italy, uh, well, for example, I know when I would see Italian films dubbed into English, the dubbing was always, eh, it was kind of, it was not great, and it was very obvious it was dubbed. And because you know, people speak Italian much faster than English, it was always kind of hard because the words always sound rushed. So finally, when I was able to see the Italian films in Italian, I was like, oh, this is great. Now I'll oh. hear what everything sounds like. It'd be great. No, they sound exactly the same. They're just in Italian. They still sound dubbed. And as we pointed out in one other show, <laughs> that although the Italians, uh, you know, when you see their characters, they don't think that perf- that person should talk and speak like he actually does. On their movies, they like the way the person looks, but they'd rather apply the voice that they think goes with the character that they right, sort of apply a voice with an emotional equivalent to their character. So someone, so say Fellini liked the look of someone, he didn't like the sound of them. I didn't yeah. think that that voice that came with a person fit the character for his movie, so he was applying another voice. So all of this might go some distance toward explaining why the lip and sound sync Synchronization is somewhat Slightly off. Slightly off. And it just, it just, I think, and actually to this day, if you see Italian films to this day, um, a lot of them still, they sound dubbed. Yeah. And they, they loop everything, man. They loop everything. It's just, and you, the only way we can clearly point out how that is, it has a different feel to it, simply because the sound is very much controlled. There's no unevenness of an exterior sound and an interior sound. If you watch the Disney movies that were made in the late 50s, like Son of Flubber and things like that, you're going to hear very even sound, a little echo, a little reverb in there. Because Disney, back in those days, they didn't want to spend a lot of money in the field recording good sound. So they would just do a scratch track. You know, and know really full well that they were going to replace it. They went it right all. back in the studio because they had a plenty of studio space and they had a factory going and they would have those actors come in there and watch the screen and apply their voices for the whole movie. And that way they never had to worry about bad sound anywhere the print went. So you mentioned this term looping, and we're assuming since it's such it's not a perfect match with the, mm-hmm. the sound of the voice and the movement of the lips, that looping was, was used here. Now explain to me exactly, I mean, how does that happen? So it, it all gets laid down, and then someone sits and watches maybe that segment of the film the actor, running will, in a loop. Yeah, they will put a loop. Basically, it comes from the fact that they will take the film and make a loop out of it so that it can be replayed quickly. And they'll put a countdown between each run I mean, of the film, and they'll get a, you know, a three, two, one, bam, the shot hits. Then they will watch it with the sound, and then they'll take the sound away, and then they will loop it. They will, they will mouth, they will speak the dialogue in sync with their image. An attempt. So they run yeah. through, so they get Several the times, so they can get it. a really good, clean pass, and they'll say, yeah, let's take three and move on. You know? Now, you can actually see them doing this in the film Singing in the Rain. Oh, you actually really? see when Debbie Reynolds loops... Uh, Lena Lamont's voice 
in, and it's basically you see it the way it Another is done. Another film about making a show, about making a film, which about brings film. us all to the point that this, um, this, this film is about a director. This is a director making a film about a director making a film, mm-hmm. and it takes on as I, I always as a kid I was marvel when they show a picture of someone looking at a picture of themselves holding a picture of themselves a picture. It takes on this sort of like infinitely becoming smaller, smaller right. aspect, which is why I do not envy you, George Willem, and the job that you generally perform for us of laying out the plot because yeah, uh, well, hmm. I didn't get it. Well, Eight and a Half is a very autobiographical film, and it is basically the story of a very famous Italian film director named Guido Anselmi, who's played by the incredible Marcello Mastroianni. And a very, very handsome man. With a wig. (laughs) Very funny hair. (laughs) At the beginning of the film, Guido is in the beginning of producing his latest film, and because he is so famous and so respected... He has lots of people hanger honors around him, and of course, lots of his producers and his writers and whatnot. And but he's got block. He's got he's got director's block. He, he cannot get started. They've got financing. They've got stars. They're beginning he's got a to writer. build. They're building this huge set of a rocket launch pad. He doesn't know why they're building it. He just has them building it. They keep asking him, "Okay, what's next?" And he doesn't know. He keeps putting them off. And he basically begins to recede into his own memories and, and begins to go back and look at his life up to this point. He, he goes back to his, you know, he sees his school days as a child in an Italian boarding school, which is somewhat harrowing. And uh, probably one of my favorite scenes in this and a scene that many people really love is uh, when he and his friends go down to the beach to give a coin to, I think her name is Sergina, the, the the kind of chunky prostitute who lives on the beach, and she dances, dances. for us. And we just love that. Scene. And I love, I love that she's voluptuous. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just love that. And it's that like chick looks real... like a lot of girls that I've dated. For <laughs> Does she? Well, it even worked the second time. That's pretty good. <laughs> well, <laughs> and even well, and uh, this this character of the of the prostitute is one that shows up in other Fellini films. So obviously, very, their eyebrows, very, their eyebrows, right? Are the very very she strong is. memory for him. Yeah, she has these almost comic opera eyebrows, you know, that sort of define her as this 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 voluptuous, sensual character. Um, as the film progresses, he he regresses. Guido regresses more and more into these dream states, kind of as a way of trying to sort himself out, sort himself out, and um, kind of a way to avoid the reality of having to make this film because a lot of money is being wasted, and the producer is very happy to keep telling him, "You are you know you need to get started. You have a contract. You got to get this film done," and and the whole thing just continually unravels. Until at a big dinner, I mean, he he basically freaks out. He ends up under the table, and and it seems, I mean, and, and Fellini becomes very loose at this point that he shoots himself. Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. But he finally, at the end, comes to grips with his film, comes to grips with his life, and he directs everything. You see him directing the characters in his life as if he were directing a movie and they all come down and it's a big circus and everybody dances and the clowns are playing instruments and blah, 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 blah. It's kind of how he copes with it by including everything, which yeah. has certainly been included in the movie up to that point. It's uh, I, 
my first Fellini film, I had not seen a Fellini film before this one. Well, and it amazed me that you say that because if you were to come to me and say, I want to see something by Fellini, Eight and a Half would be probably the last film I would recommend as a first time out because it's already, I mean, he's already so well established by the time he does Eight and a Half that he knows, he knew even then, that the people who would, would come to see this would be the people who enjoyed La Strada and La Dolce Vita and some of the earlier films, and this is sort of the you know the culmination of all that work of all of those years. But surprise, surprise, when we announced that we were going to do this film, we couldn't find a decent print to look at. Right. A lot of people were waiting, uh, sent us letters saying, "What happened to Eight and a Half? What happened to Eight and a Half?" So there is this movie still uh, really is is visited by a lot of people uh, in memory and also they they speak a lot about it and obviously in in our listenership people are really waiting so that mm-hmm. we've finally gotten around it we can look at a like uh nikki and i we both have criterion prints and and of course you have the <laughs> yeah. watermark prints yeah. so, <laughs> we have a, print. fancy little boxes in front of george and, and he has this yeah, there's this cardboard wrap. It's got like a Converse it. tennis shoe print on yeah, the back Yeah, duct tape on it. it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a testament to George's good taste, though, because he's had this movie for a while. Now, Jay Todd and I just picked it up after the fabulous reissue. But right. Yes, and we are, uh, as we, we will salute Criterion for making this such a fabulous looking. Uh, well, and this, this kind of points here, out man. points it's, out the difficulty of, of film preservation because the, the DVD that I have, which is an older, you know, was the first uh, DVD of Eight and a Half to come out, is actually released by the company that owns the at least the American rights to this film. But the print that they use for this DVD looks like it fell off the back of a truck. Mm. It's very contrasty. Um, it, it, I think it's a 35, but there are points where it kind of looks like it might be a 16. It's not Millimeter a very good print. Yeah. print yeah. And, um, it, you know, it, it's watchable. It's still very watchable. But I have no doubt that the Criterion is, you know, they. I'm sure they went to the trouble of hunting down either the original negative or a beautiful fine grain to take this from. Because the photography in this film is one of its true glories. The photography is is, is just makes this film when people um imitate fellini you know here's what why this thing is so successful because it's easily imitated you know it's it's flattery you know mm-hmm. when, when people imitate things they're really flattering it and so it's easy to do something oh that's like a fellini movie you know and and it's easy to dress like fellini you know and have that it's he really <laughs> It, this is really a character kind of driven movie from the standpoint the whole movie is a character and people even a film student you know you could probably you know single out something i want to see a fellini movie and they could probably find elements of this movie to imitate so you could identify it as a fellini movie it's he set a style that nobody had ever seen before and that's why it's so easy to imitate you know it's it's countless they have countless parodies of this movie with the, the woman on the beach and it never stops. I mean, it's, oh, yeah, the 1960s, it's a Fellini, you know. <laughs> That's one of its greatest successes that people make fun of it. But they're in the, in, when they're making fun of it, they're obviously appreciating it. Uh, You're listening to Filmically Perfect, and we're talking about the 1963 Fellini film Eight and a Half. And I really appreciate what you're saying about easy to imitate. There's, there's, it's, it's, there's, it's an iconography that he seems to have developed in his own way. It sort of has these, uh, it's, it's all about the image. And certainly in this case, not so much 
about the plot, which in this great Criterion uh, reissue, they have a, a short segment where uh, filmmaker Terry Gilliam uh, gives him his impressions of this film. And he specifically singles out that opening scene that um, had a huge impact on him. Yeah, the opening scene is amazing. And it, it's a perfect example of how Fellini just kind of tosses you in into the, the mix right there at the beginning. It's just, you know, the film starts out just there's this very very standard title, eight and a half, just the number eight and a half. It says you know, by by Federico Fellini. Fades out, fades in on this tunnel, this tunnel full of traffic, but there's no sound. It is there's no exhaust sound. There's no horns. There's nothing. It's silent, and the camera just kind of glides through these cars that are all in this parking. You know this this mass of cars. They're so close together. It's They're not all even very. Real. It's ridiculously They're like close three together. Three inches like a apart. Yeah. But what direction. what you're seeing here is the time. It's it's. You can see the cars, you know, mm-hmm. it's very clearly in the 1960s, and people have taken to their cars. They're all in their cars doing all sorts of crazy things. Yeah, and, I mean, you even and see he's it. suffocating in his car. Yeah. yeah, and interesting enough, everyone else you see, you see their faces uh, head on. When you see Guido, you only see him from the back, you don't get to see his face. But he starts suffering. Yeah, the car fills up with smoke. For no good reason, just you know, and he's trapped. He's suffocating. You can hear that really great sound editing of feet on glass. And yeah, it's really he can't. He stuff. can't get out. And it's very obviously that it's not so much that he's suffocating in his car, but he is suffocating in life. He is trapped. He's he's blocked up. He can't get his ideas going. And everyone else you see watches, kind of watches him from their cars as he falls apart. And he finally escapes from the car. Through the wind, climbs out to the window, out to the window, climbs gets on, on the roof, and then floats away. In one of my all-time favorite shots where he's a kite. And you can sight down (laughs) the string. And they do the reverse and he's this kite. This kite. Lying around. around This beautiful little experimental film in the front of the film is the film. Yeah. (laughs) And then, then, you know, he's he's up there flying away. (laughs) But he's tethered. And one of his producers and one of his boys is down there. Bob says, I got him. I got him. On the beach. And you're looking down his leg. Right. And you see the the rope to his leg that's leading to this man that picks it up and starts pulling. And then the the line producer comes down and says, bring him down. So they give a good yank on the rope and you just see this... Little body just fall to the beach, and then and, he wakes up, and so begins. And not surprisingly, that this was uh, made such an impression on uh, on Terry Gilliam because that kind of thing, that feeling, and those uh, kind of images to me are present in Brazil. So yes, yeah, so there's constantly these beautiful dream sequences that then end up in a very rude awakening. He has a lot of uh, juxtapositions of uh, images in the bathroom. This very clean modern bathroom. In the middle, you'll see a antique sink sink, where he's going to go and he uses that and see i i now i know exactly what you're talking about but i didn't recognize that that it's just like clean sleek doesn't even fit in it's just jammed in there i mean it's you know nicely composed of course but it's you know it's its form is is definitely jammed in with all the modern fixtures and And this is something that kind of comes out the sort of the juxtaposition angle uh that becomes more and more uh visible in Fellini's films as he progresses, as he develops this this way of making films, you'll begin to notice that even though, in a, let's say in a certain shot, you have two characters conversing up here in the front, in the back you'll have other characters just sitting or reading or not doing much of anything, but they carry just as much weight in that shot as people close up. In fact, it's like the people talking are the point, the people in the background are the counterpoint. You know, And, and in fact, it gets into some films where Characters in the background who don't have a part in the story will suddenly turn and look 
out at the audience. You have a lot of people looking down. You can't see their face. And then they look up and reveal who they are. Many times, like when he's kissing his mother, that the, becomes his girlfriend. The, the, the whole cemetery scene where he goes to visit the mother's The there. ceiling is too low. The father complains that the ceiling is too low. Right. And the mother gives him this overly passionate kiss. And when she pulls back, it's his, his wife. wife. Yeah. And when I was Ew. in Europe, I was in Europe a couple of years ago, and one of the things that I noticed when I was in Italy is that the, they still kind of move around the fountain. I know it sounds really, a, but like they the do. The town center, the town, you know? the culture, and Fellini does this a lot in movies. They're always revolving around water. A lot of times, there's always water in these shots. You know, somebody has to be cleaned up all the time in his movies. <laughs> Especially in the prostitute scene, you know, when the when the when the Catholic police guys come and take the little kid away, they, they you know it's, they're taking him right by the water. There's always a lot of water in Fellini's movies, as right. far as uh, there's a cleansing. You know, they they're, have a drink of holy water, and they're going yeah. to this place where they're all drinking holy water. There's always this cleansing of water for some reason in this picture. Um, I think a lot of his. I mean, I'm sure as with so many Italians from his time and era, he probably had an extremely strict Catholic upbringing. And that is another element, of course, that shows up. And actually, in most directors of... of you no, know, we've really got to hand it to the Catholic Church for giving us a lot of great directors <laughs> like Alfred Hitchcock and <laughs> Frederick. You know, my hat is off to the Pope for giving Something us some great... Uh, Louis, Louis Bunuel. Louis Bunuel. These people are really got, you know, they really got uh, a lot of problems with a few things, but making great films has never been one of them. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I, didn't, I don't understand this film. I don't pretend to. I, there's just nothing quite about it that made sense except for the resonance of the images there's something iconic about the images. i can tell you when i watch this movie i give up i just give up <laughs> i just sit there and i just start just thinking go on for the ride i'm just gonna watch this thing because it's kind of fun just to but watch all these circus it. clowns and uh, and it's right. very stylish you can like i said if you now i'm not gonna we're not gonna do this as an experiment on film it perfect but because uh, we're not we're not into torturing children um <laughs> we were gonna make you're if, not if you could <laughs> You could possibly bring your kids in and give them a camera and make them watch this movie like 20 times. They could probably <laughs> imitate it. They would probably be, you know, I'm not kidding you. There's, there's something about the way he does things. It's one of the reasons it's perfect. Yeah, you know, I, I, I didn't understand it. And I knew that pretty early on. I didn't understand I wasn't going to understand it. But it is nice, nice to look at. Really pretty pictures. Really nice um, I really love that it's black and white. He could have done this movie in color, but it's black and white, and it is just so engaging. The Italians just there's look a lot of you can lovely. see a lot of um, feel from other Italian directors in this movie, like Sergio Leone. There's uh, some of their patented shots where you're looking really long on an infinite kind of you know in his uh, father's when his father's funeral or whatever is, there's a building or something that just goes into infinity and then they bring this super fat close up in from the screen left mm -hmm. and you see a lot of that and you know the good bad and the ugly and uh there's a lot of elements of style that those guys obviously were were cooking in the same kitchen you know right. at that period uh, <laughs> la cucina yeah they were making the same kind of food uh, and they're discussing movies uh. so it's all in italian with sub Titles, which I usually find really, really distracting. Hey, do we have a clip on this movie? Uh, we do, and uh, and I have to say though, I didn't mind one bit that I didn't understand a single thing. Well, let, being let said. me set this up then for those of you out there who have not seen Eight and a Half, mm -hmm. naughty, naughty. Um, <laughs> 
One of the largest sequences in the film is uh, a sort of a, a dream that Guido has about all the women in his life. And you see his mother and his sisters and and Saragina, the prostitute, and the showgirls that he's known and his wife and everybody. And they all bathe him and feed him. And then comes this scene that we're going to listen to where one of the showgirls, Jacqueline, who you've seen earlier, this kind of frowsy, befeathered showgirl who's, who's older and her feathers are falling out of her costume, she is told to go upstairs. Which is like a metaphor for goodbye. Like, goodbye. I'm done with you. You're done. You're going upstairs. You'll be well t- cared for, <laughs> but you're out of my hair. And Don't let this, the door hit you on the way basically, out. Basically, uh, in this scene, Jacqueline shows up and she is very upset about being told to go upstairs. Jacqueline, pare che di sopra si stia bene lo stesso. Non è vero! Il tuo orecchino, Jacqueline. Grazie. <laughs> oh, no more Rice Krispies! <laughs> oh, what a hoot! <laughs> no more I almost started Rice Krispies! <laughs> We've run out of Rice Krispies! Go, go upstairs with you. You're, we're done. Go on, go on. <laughs> Um, if you notice in the background, the, the music, and actually the music played at the beginning, uh, the music plays such a big part in this movie. And again, this is one of those great combinations of director and composer that has worked so well for like Wells and, and Bernard Herrmann and uh, Spielberg and John Williams. In this case, it's Fellini and Nino Rota. Um, and Rota's music is, is often very kind of bouncy, but it can also be very, very sort of sinister, as you heard in this scene. And it really carries the film along. It just kind of makes the film race along at times. It really sounds a lot like uh, some of the areas in Citizen Kane when they're, everything's falling apart and you can hear this real low tone of music and then somebody's breaking down. And uh, it's very similar. Very Which similar. is probably why uh, Coppola actually hired Nino Rota to do the music for The Godfather. To, you know, to sort of because, I mean, he was just, he was Fellini's guy. And I think you would definitely want to have that Italian. Remember, Italian this is the period of some of those great composers from Italy, like Morcone. Nino and, Morcone. Uh, yeah. This is really fabulous and composers it, from Italy. Is that it? Neo, Ineo? Ineo Morcone. Morcone. Yeah, yeah. He mm-hmm. did all the spaghetti westerns. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I believe he is still out there working. If he I'm is. Not he is still working because yes. I worked with him two years ago on yeah. a project. Um, interesting project. <laughs> So see, there's something enduring, which of course uh, brings us back to our rules. Uh, we are almost out of time, gentlemen, and uh, I, you know I'll give it to you again. I didn't understand this movie, did not understand it, but I have to say, completely enjoyed watching it, and uh, I would even watch it again. And I know I'd get something more else out of it. I would say, yeah, the average person is probably not going to understand some of the the more a, a, emotional aspects of what Guido's going through. But I would say, anybody who's made a movie uh, uh, and has or has had writer's block. 
or has a deadline for something and just, you know, the, the sort of the log rolling that you have to do to try to get through the and day. And to quote George Bernard Shaw, there is no greater potential, than, no greater burden than potential. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Which kind of goes with my motto. It's like, I'm nothing but potential. <laughs> this has been a perfect movie. There's no doubt about it. And I would definitely watch it again. The, my official introduction to Fellini has been, you know, I don't understand it, but I, I'd like to see more. So uh, we uh, Yeah, I wouldn't scare anyone away from watching this, but I would recommend that they might try a little easier Fellini film before they <laughs> tackle this one. We've been talking about Eight and a Half, a perfect movie, and uh, we've been doing that with the film guys. And gentlemen, as always, what a pleasure to Todd Anderson, Storyboard Artist of the Stars. Thank you for being here. Always my pleasure. Thank you very much. Mr. George Willeman, the archive nitrate film archivist from the Library of Congress. George, thanks for being here. Grazie. Gentlemen, until next time. Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect, coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please.